Acts chapter 13. Part two in the series that I've titled The Galatians, not to be confused with the book of Galatians. Now, the, the letter that Paul wrote to Galatians, he wrote to a group of churches, the church at Antioch being one of them. There are also some other towns that he visits in his first missionary journey. And then when he goes back home, trouble erupts <laughs> because, uh, and we'll talk about it as we get into uh, future studies here where they go to Antioch or to uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and and uh, the Jews get pretty worked up. They'll get pretty worked up beginning next week as we finish chapter 13 as well. Things are going well as he is laying out the gospel to these people. Um, pretty amazing that, that Paul and Barnabas now, uh, as we've looked at, they're on their first missionary journey. Now, they didn't know that. <laughs> we know it. Because we look at the whole picture in the book of Acts and we think, well, okay, they took three journeys. All they knew was that they were there at the church in Antioch and the Holy Spirit said, go. And so being obedient to God, they went. And uh, as we looked at, they had began there at Antioch in Syria. And from there, they traveled to Cyprus, a, a large island in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and uh, we talked about how the work that they did there and, and uh, Sergius Paulus, the guy that was the governor of the island and how he came to know Christ. And, uh, and then from there, they sailed north to the mainland and what would be southern Turkey today, uh, landed in a place called Perga in Pamphylia. That, like Perga would be the city, Pamphylia would be the region. And so they start out there. Uh, and then from there, we can assume that Paul gets pretty sick. Uh, I personally, my own personal opinion doesn't tell us anywhere what he got, but we get some clues because we see that he has eye problems and that uh, things are going on. And, and that from there in uh, Perga, they travel up to Antioch and Pisidia, which is way up in the mountains. A perilous journey. We looked at that last week. And so he and Barnabas get to this place, uh, uh, the other Antioch. And there was a guy that went around, in, in, I, I think it was in the days of Alexander the Great, and he named a whole bunch of cities Antioch. And it was the same guy that founded these cities. He just traveled the empire, and <laughs> there's an Antioch, there's another Antioch. And, and he, that was what he did. And, uh, I started to do a bit of a deep dive on that, and I thought, I'm going to get real distracted. But... Just uh, that, for your information, uh, that was on purpose, that these cities get named the same name. So now uh, in Antioch and Pisidia, which is part of Galatia, they've traveled into Galatia. Now that's the, the, the Roman region, the province of Galatia. Uh, they have gone into the synagogue on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. Uh, Paul, uh, as I mentioned, he's sick. He's, he's not feeling well. But remember last week he talked about, he said, because of my illness, I preach to you, not in spite of my illness. So God is using this illness somehow. Again, we don't have the details, but God is using it uh, to sort of drive Paul to the place where he is there, where he is and doing what he's doing because he didn't feel good. And I think that's remarkable. I know many times uh, in, 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 in a much lesser degree, I don't put myself on par with the Apostle Paul at all. 
And yet, uh, I do know that many times, whenever I'm feeling sick, there have been times where I have just felt horrible. And it's like, Lord, I'm just going to go do what you've called me to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to teach. I remember the first time that happened, I was at a church in Gridley, California, and I was scheduled to, to preach Sunday morning, and I woke up, I had the flu, and it's like, you know what, God? There's no time to call somebody to fill in. <laughs> and I'm just going to trust you. And, and I have been amazed at his faithfulness. And Paul is leaning on the faithfulness of God here. Uh, I believe that this could easily be what he refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. as his thorn in the flesh uh, that he prayed would be removed, and it wasn't. And so he leaned into it, figured, well, that's just what God has for me. Uh, good attitude to have. So here, it, it, what we looked at uh, last week was as he begins this first sermon. It's the first recorded sermon, first recorded teaching that he does. He had probably done some teaching up in Tarsus after he left Jerusalem. Kind of, <laughs> And I think he left because he was taking an early retirement until Barnabas went and got him. But uh, he'd probably done some teaching up there in his home region. And then probably he and Barnabas had done some teaching on the island of Cyprus as they had gone through. We know that he had given instruction to, uh, again, to Sergius, Paulus. But uh, we can assume that they went to the synagogues and did that. But this is the first recorded teaching that we have. And it's a great pattern. We looked at how it's patterned very closely after the teaching that Stephen did there in Jerusalem when the religious leaders rushed up on him and killed him uh, while Paul, at then Saul, held the cloaks of those who were stoning him. And I can only imagine that it had a profound impact on him. So in verses 13 through 25, we saw that Paul begins now to, uh, he recounts Israel's history. And he's going back into the Old Testament, into their Bible, the scriptures, And he's saying, look at this. And he pulls that forward and he says, now Christ is the fulfillment of this. And then he comes and he pulls this out. He starts all the way back in Genesis, talks about the fathers of the nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he goes forward from there. He goes into the Exodus, how the people prospered in Egypt. And then they didn't prosper in Egypt. And God had to go and literally pull them out of the land through Moses. And and then he goes through... And he talks about they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Each time he connects this to an aspect of the fulfillment that we have in Christ. And the point in all of that is that you've heard me use the term redemptive history. All right. As I mentioned last week, things start out with Adam and Eve in the creation and, and, and then they go terribly wrong. And from that point, God begins the work of redemption, bringing men back into fellowship with him. And the whole Bible is redemptive history. From that point forward, the gospel fits into that. And what Paul is doing here is he's recounting Israel's redemptive history, the, the redemptive history, the, the, that which God had done consistently and continuously to reach into their lives and to work on their behalf to bring them into a place of relationship with him. Well, I want you to, to understand something here. This isn't a bunch of fragmented events. I look at redemptive history as like a river. Uh, and and it, it, that it flows through time. And we're going to look at that. And I want you to catch that this morning. Because 
as we come into that deeper understanding, as we look at this, as we look at the flow of redemptive history, we will discover that we are in that flow. And, And Paul's design in this sermon to the people here in Antioch is that they realize they are in that flow, that they are not standing on the banks of the river. They're in the river. They are not observers of what God is doing in his redemptive work. They're part of it. So are we. Extremely important that we understand that because we pull ourselves out of that. This is just a history lesson. You know, let's study up and go home. But no, when we see that we are indeed part of God's plan, that we are involved in God's plan, that we are central, really, humanity is central to God's plan, then it changes our perspective. We'll talk about that towards the end of the message today. So he goes through their history. He he works through, as I mentioned, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He goes into Joshua, Judges. He, then he talks about Samuel, the prophet, and then he gets into the time of the kings. And, and he makes a distinction. If you remember last week, he makes a distinction. He says, the people chose Saul uh, to be their king, head and shoulders above the rest, handsome guy, striking man, taller than anybody else in Israel. Man, this guy was a star. He looked good. He would have done great, you know, in a photo shoot. It was a terrible king. So that was the people's choice. But then God raises up. We're told that God raised up King David. Remember we talked about that. David's or Jesse's sons get all lined up at the house and, and Samuel's there and he goes, it's not any of these guys. Especially not you, Eliab, because you look like Saul did. You know, you look like you play the part, but you're not God's choice. Anybody else here? Well, there's the kid out in the field. Bring him in. He's the one, dumps the oil on his head, anoints David as king. Interesting, when we look in the New Testament, I I really do believe in the principle that Scripture validates Scripture. And that as we study, as we look in God's Word, that we find that there are passages that validate other passages. And as we're looking at this whole, as we're looking at the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures that Paul is bringing out, It reminds me of what the writer, and I'm not saying it was Paul, in the the letter to the Hebrew believers, in Hebrews, we don't know who the writer was, personal opinion about that, but in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, God, who at various times and in various ways, he's talking about redemptive history and the different ways that he did it in different periods, He spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, that he used them to convey his message of redeeming man. He says he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And in that, in Hebrews 1, 2, the word his is in italics, is by son. Because he's not talking about birthright, he's talking about position. That his son, his only begotten son, in these days, he is the fulfillment. He, we get the complete message. In those days, it was pieces and parts. And that's what Paul is doing here in Antioch. He's saying, look at this over here. And he pulls it forward. says, Christ is the fulfillment of that. Look at this over there. And he pulls it forward. Christ is the fulfillment of that. And we're going to see more of that this morning as we go through the text. 
what he's doing is he's stringing together, uh, stringing together an assortment of scriptures, uh, which cover many centuries, uh, and demonstrating from the scripture that Christ was central to God's plan all along. Uh, Beautiful the way that he does it. Again, under the empowering of the Holy Spirit, he is putting these things together and we'll find out that towards the end of this time, the people are left. I mean, their heads are spinning by the time he's done. They're saying, can you please give us more? Because he he stirred up a spiritual hunger in them that they wanted to have satisfied. In Psalm 40, uh, verse 7, as a matter of fact, the writer again to the Hebrews, to the Hebrew believers who were really suffering in the first century, uh, in encouraging them, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, the writer quotes Psalm 40, verse 7. He says, Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Again, prophetically, what Paul is doing here, he's saying, look, it was all about Jesus to begin with. We just didn't know his name until he came and until they did what they did to him in Jerusalem. He gets to that here in a minute. So uh, as we go through and as we work through this, and the reason why I do this brief review is because it, it is at, we, we're breaking into the middle of his message to the people there, the Jews and, and, and the Gentiles. They're both there. Uh, there at the, the synagogue at Antioch. I, I want us to be able to catch the flow. So uh, he goes on, he wraps up what we looked at last week. We wrapped up with looking at John the Baptist, that he was a forerunner. We talked about John's baptism being different than the baptism that we have. I'm not going to go into that again, but it is very different. Uh, and, and that uh, he, uh, I, you know, I think it's interesting. This struck me uh, as I was studying for this week. He's assuming, now he's all the way up in this remote region in the mountains in Galatia. And he's assuming that these people know who John the Baptist was. And they did. He doesn't have to explain. Now, okay, he was the guy, and then they did, and then that happened. And all. No, he understands that they know. Because the word of the gospel had gone out. The word of God had been going out. And now, as he speaks to John the Baptist, he knows that they understand what he's talking about. That he was the forerunner, the one whose sandal uh, he was, uh, speaking of Christ, uh, whose sandal I'm not worthy to unloose. Left off in verse 26 last week, where he said, Men and brethren, and sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, that's the Gentiles, uh, who were, uh, they had warmed up to Judaism, but they weren't Jews. They may have been proselytes, some of them. So he's talking about the sons of Abraham, the family of Abraham, that's the Jews, and those among you who fear God, that's the Gentiles. He says, to you. Now he's applying it. He's making it personal. He's not saying to them. He says, this applies to you. And folks, I I want to point my finger at you. To you. Because God's word is timeless. He's saying to you, the word of the salvation has been sent. 
This isn't just story time. This is important stuff. This is for you. You need to apply God's word to your life is what he's essentially saying to these people. He's demonstrating to the people there at the synagogue in Antioch that they're not standing on the banks. That they're indeed in the flow of redemptive history. They're they're in God's plan. They are part of what God is doing. And, And please, you've heard me share before, if you have a, an abstract view of God's word, if you look at it like, well, that's there and I'm here and that's what happened with them and this is what happens with me, you've got the wrong view. You've got to see that your life is is within that flow of redemptive history. You've got to see that your life is part of God's plan, that his plan isn't for other people. It's for us, it's for you, it's for me. And there's relevance and there's importance And we have to be in a place where we're willing to apply his word to our own lives. He says, those among you who fear God, to you the word of the salvation has come. Essentially all that had been spoken since Adam, what was known as the long-awaited hope of Israel, Messiah, and the salvation that he brings had been sent to them all the way along from the garden. Remember in the garden, God said that that he will bruise your heel. Speaking of Satan bruising the heel of the coming Messiah, but you will crush his head. Speaking again of the cross and of the victory of the cross where Satan wanted to get Jesus on that cross in the worst way. And he drove the, the people. He was behind the scenes working, getting him to the place where he could get him out of the way And again, what happened was rather than defeat, there was triumph because that's when Jesus became the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for the sins of the world. Stacey and I were watching a television program the other night on Israel, on Jerusalem. And they were talking about a concept called temple denial. And they were talking about back in the year 2000 with Yasser Arafat with the Camp David Accords where uh, then President Clinton had Yasser Arafat and the Prime Minister of Israel there. And, and Arafat said, well, the temple never existed. <laughs> Actually, and, and to Bill Clinton's, you know, to his credit, which I don't find a lot to do that, but to his credit, uh, he defended, he said, no, now you're stepping on our toes. The temple did exist. But the assertion that's been made and is currently being made is that the Islam people, the people of Islam, the the Muslims, are asserting that the temple, Solomon's temple never existed. Herod's temple never existed. There's a temple mount, but it never existed. They are trying to erase the history of the temple. Why would they do that? Because if you get rid of the heritage of those people, then they have no right, they have no legitimate claim currently on the land, on the the Temple Mount. And that's their strategy. They have gone so far, I was talking recently about, they've taken backhoes and they've been hollowing out the stuff under the Temple Mount, uh, centuries of antiquities, dumping them in piles. And I visited a ministry when I was there, that was there uh, in the valley just off of the, uh, the Kidron Valley, just off the Temple Mount, 
where they have these huge tents set up where they're taking the tailings and they're sifting through and and removing the antiquities that are just being discarded by the Muslims. And the reason they're doing that is to destroy their history. It reminded me, and again, I'm not going to get all political on you, but, but it reminded me of what's happening in our country with things like the 1619 Project, where let's rewrite America's history because if we can change the past, we have control of the present and the future. And that's what's going on. That's what's going on in our Even though that 1619 has been totally debunked, there are still schools that are implementing that curriculum uh, and, and, and evil, <laughs> evil at its core, evil, what's going on in Israel. Well, even with that history intact, again, Paul has been going through, he's been, yeah, it's a history lesson, but again, it's more than just history. It, 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 these are living realities that, are, are, that impact the people directly. And even with that history intact, the Jews, tragically, had rejected it. They had rejected Messiah. In verse 27, he says, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. These guys read the Bible all the time. That was part of their services. Part of what they did was they would open up the scrolls and they would read. He says, they didn't listen even to the voices of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, that they have fulfilled them in condemning him. I think this is a fascinating verse. So verse 27 summarizes the blindness of the Jews. (laughs) The the Jews in Jerusalem uh, uh, that they had about the scriptures. They were spiritually blind. We read, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who choose not to believe, because believing is seeing. And they couldn't see, even though they dogmatically read the scriptures day in and day out, week in and week out, they missed it. They missed the prophetic signs that foreshadowed the coming of Messiah. They, look at Psalm 22, beautiful messianic psalm. Look at Isaiah 53, uh, Zechariah, Malachi, a whole bunch of prophecies. There is numerous prophetic <coughs> Uh, places in the Old Testament that do what Paul is doing here at the at the synagogue in Antioch, and he's pulling those forward and saying that pointed to Christ. He's saying because they missed it, that they themselves became the fulfillment of the prophecies. Think about Isaiah 53. He was esteemed uh, not. He was afflicted. He was despised. He was rejected. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verse 11, uh, we're told he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Verse 28, though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. You know, there's a thread throughout the book of Acts, (laughs) and and I I think it's significant. The very first message that Peter gives there in Acts, what is it, chapter 3, on the day of Pentecost, he is very, very clear to remind the Jews of what they had done. Whom you crucified. He might have, and I picture him just poking them in the chest. Look, this Jesus whom you crucified. And, and Luke, again, uh, records Paul doing the same thing here. He says, you killed him. 
Luke continuously reminds his readers the Jews' responsibility. They had a great responsibility uh, in their handling and their treatment of Messiah. Verse 29, and when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. I, you know, you read this and you think, why do they call it a tree and not a cross? Remember, Paul is orienting them to the Old Testament. And for those, especially those who had studied the scripture, had studied the Old Testament and studied it thoroughly, this would set off a bell. Because in Deuteronomy 21, in the law of Moses, there's a law there that says you can't leave a condemned person's body on a tree overnight. And so even in that, there's a nuance here. He doesn't say, I'm quoting Deuteronomy, but even in that, when he makes the mention of it and he structures his statement that way, it's a reflection of something that found its fulfillment from the Old Testament in the current reality that he's talking about and its fulfillment in Christ. In verse 30, he says, but God, but God. Uh, There's one of those, you know, have you ever looked at, I love it when I see the but God sayings in the Bible. I love it in Ephesians chapter two, you were dead. You weren't kind of dead. You weren't passed out. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us. He goes on. It says here, but God raised him from the dead. Interesting. Something I think is significant again in, in looking at the book of Acts as a whole, looking at the gospel. Every single time that Luke brings up the crucifixion, he ties it to the resurrection. And I, and I looked, I mean, I, I, I searched it out preparing for this morning. It's like, yeah, every single time that the crucifixion or the cross is mentioned, it's followed by the resurrection. Why? We find an answer, the, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of the importance of the resurrection. I mean, Jesus didn't stay dead. We're going to look at that in a minute. He says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are of all men and women the most pitiable. And our faith is worthless. It's in vain. Folks, we've got to have understanding that the crucifixion is vital in understanding the whole counsel of God. Yes, I love the cross. I love the work that was done. Yeah, I love that the, you know, the the words of that song, the terrible, wonderful cross, because it was both terrible and wonderful. And yet we don't get the power to live. We get the power to be alive through the work of the cross, but the power to live, the power to walk with the Lord, the power to discern his word, all of that comes through the power of the resurrection. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with power, the firstborn of the resurrection. And we've got to understand that it is, it is inexorably linked. It is permanently linked to the crucifixion because the work didn't stop at the cross. The work of our redemption was clearly accomplished. There's some weird doctrine out there that says, you know, our salvation comes through the, the, the resurrection. No, it doesn't. Our salvation was accomplished at the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished. The work was done. Proof that the work was done 
was when death couldn't hold him. Verse 31, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. So what he's saying here is the resurrection wasn't an opinion. (laughs) It wasn't a concept. It wasn't a maybe. Every one of the apostles, every single one except for John, who was preserved so that he could write the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, every single one of these guys that traveled with Jesus would die a violent death. Would they do that for a lie? Would they do that because, hey guys, let's get together. Here's a pretty good racket. We can go tell them all that this guy rose from the dead. No, they were witnesses. Uh, Eyewitnesses of his majesty. I love the way that that's rendered. I don't remember where, but it's in there somewhere. The word witnesses here, the Greek word uh, is martus. It's where it's the root word where we get the word martyr from. Uh, and, and it's true that at this point, when this was written, the only martyrs uh, to date were John the Baptist and James, as we looked at in chapter 12, where James is executed by Herod. Almost Peter, <laughs> but you remember the angel came, smacked him in the side, got him up, said, get dressed, get out of here, uh, because Herod's coming for you. But the point in this is their lives continue to witness to us today. Uh, Peter says we have a, a more sure word of prophecy, uh, and that, uh, that God's word, we see that God's word is true, it's profitable for, tre- for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, as Paul wrote to Timothy. This is powerful stuff. Understand that there's power in God's word. If there wasn't, Paul would not be camping out on it and taking the people back and saying, look, you've got to see God's word was all about Messiah all along. And if you look, I decided not, it it, it went on to the cutting room floor. I decided not to go into it, but I actually went back and I looked through this entire chapter, at every time it was mentioned, it is written. It is written. It was written for us. It was put down. It, it, it is all over the place here. And, and why would that be? Because Paul understands the importance of the word of God in bringing to bear the things of God. It is God's speech to us. It's Again, it's not just an abstract. This is real stuff. This is reality. And that's what shapes our worldview. I love what Rick's doing with our, our Monday night group uh, because it, it is truly, it comes back to the word of God, shaping the way we look at the world around us. Very, very important. Verse 32, and we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. So, Glad tidings, I thought, well, there, there's a Bible word or a Bible, you know, <laughs> phrase. Uh, very much like with the, you know, it, when we're with the birth of Jesus, we bring you news of glad tidings. It's actually the same word that's used for gospel. Uh, it means good news. He said, we declare to you good news. That promise which was made to the fathers. Uh, the, the, the Greek word is evangelizo. It's where we get the word evangelize or evangelism from. Good news of what? Well, I'm glad you asked. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
the Apostle Paul speaking there to the church at Rome years later, years later after these events here in Acts. But the message remains the same. He says, Paul, Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel, the same word as glad tidings, uh, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's exactly what Paul is doing here in Acts. He's talking about the promises of God, which, were, which came through the prophets. He's talking about the importance of the Scripture. He says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Again, we looked at that last week. He talks about David, about Jesus being the seed of David and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's the fulfillment of the promise. He speaks of that promise made to the fathers. Now, Luke in Acts chapter three talks about that. He says, you're sons of the prophets speaking to the people and of the covenant, which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is what the promise was. That's what God promised to Abraham. Look in your seed. And Paul makes a distinction in the book of Galatians when he writes back to these people that he's talking to here in Acts. He says, he doesn't say seeds, physical lineage. He says, seed, Spiritual lineage, big difference. He's saying that from Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How does that happen? Through Messiah, through the one. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this for uh, for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, as prophetically speaking of God's promise to the fathers, which look forward to Messiah. Verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, or that means to rot or to decay. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So he says, look, he's the first to be resurrected, the first fruits of the dead, We see that in 1 Corinthians, again, in in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He talks about the sure mercies of David. And he's quoting Isaiah 55 there, where he's talking about the everlasting covenant that God makes with David, that he would have an endless throne. Of your throne, there will be no end. Now he goes on, he's going to clarify here. He says in verse 35, therefore he also says in another another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Corruption being, again, to, to, to decay. So he's continuing to demonstrate Christ's fulfillment of the promises made to the fathers. For David, after he has served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. Now sleep, when you talk, when the, the New Testament talks about that, it is, he, didn't, he wasn't taking a nap. It's a euphemism for death, for physical death. Because they understood there was a difference between spiritual death and physical death. When they fell asleep, it was physical death. Uh, those who sleep 
will rise first, we're told in Thessalonians, when, when, in the rapture, when there's the snatching away. So understand that that's the, what he's talking about there. Uh, he's saying, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and he saw corruption. In other words, David stayed dead. <laughs> he died and stayed dead. Even the great King David, death held him. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. In other words, when Jesus rose from the dead, he, he rose with a body. It's a bodily resurrection. His body did not decay. He rose in a physical body. So as Paul wraps up, he's concluding his, his Old Testament recap uh, he talks about Psalm 16.10, where David wrote of Messiah. He says, you won't leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament. Every time in the synagogue in Antioch, every time David opens his mouth, the scripture comes out and the fulfillment that Christ is. I mean, if you look at this as a whole, it is just a beautiful exposition and summary of the work of God throughout their history, of what he was doing when he brought it to a completion, when he brought the pinnacle of all that these things pointed to, was to Jesus. Now, there is a rule in Bible study, the, the, the technical term is hermeneutics. <laughs> Herman who? Uh, that means it's the science of Bible study, but there's a rule that we talk about we were talking about in our men's group last week. Uh, the first rule is, is to go with the, the direct application, to go with the simplest explanation. But when you look at inductive Bible study, the way that you do it is that there's three points to it. One is observation. The other is interpretation. The third is application. Observe, interpret, apply. When you look at God's word, when you study God's word, if you keep that in mind, observe the text, observe it in light of the context. And I like to look at several contexts. I look at the cultural context, the historical context, the textual context, and the contextual context, because a text without a context is a con. <laughs> out of context, just, it just never gets it. The point is, as you observe the text, as you study God's word, you say, okay, Lord, let this speak to me. What are you saying? What are you wanting to accomplish? What is relevant? What Paul has been doing is he's been making observations from the Old Testament. Out of that, he's been giving them interpretation that says, look, all of this points to Christ. Every bit of it. In the volume of the book, it's written of me. And now he applies it. Verse 38, he says, therefore. When you see a therefore, you should ask yourself, what's it there for? It points back to what has just been said, and it brings to bear what has just been said with what's about to be said. So therefore, uh, I picture Paul's eyes barreling into the people there at the synagogue in Antioch. Let it be known to you. Oh, me? Yeah, you. <laughs> Brethren that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. So he's driving it home. 
He's landing, we call that in, in, in Bible teacher circles, we call that landing the plane. He's landing the plane. He's been flying around for a while, and now he's going to land the plane. And but I've sat in Bible studies before, and I'm going, land the plane, come on, land the plane. <laughs> because you don't want to leave people just with a, a, a sort of a, an ethereal concept of what you're saying. You want to land the plane. You want to be able to apply it to people's lives, because it's relevant. And Paul knows that. So he's made observation, he's given interpretation, and now he's, he's giving them application. This applies to you. And folks, the word of God is timeless in its application. This applies to you as well and to me. This is good stuff. Is through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He's there in the synagogue, these people, they had been steeped every week in the law of Moses. They had gone and, and had studied and they were faithful. They wanted to find answers and all of that. He's saying, look, you couldn't be justified by the law of Moses. You gotta understand something here. We're forgiven. First uh, John chapter one verse nine. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, I look at that. It's like okay, my debt has been squared up. Okay, uh, it, you know, my life was in the in the pits because of my sin. What is my sin? Every thought, word, or deed from birth that doesn't come to the standard of God's holiness and his perfection. So what does that mean? There's a lot. To be forgiven is to be have that erased, to be brought up to where I'm even. My debt is squared. However, to be justified is way different than that, and it's way better. I mean, yeah, you've got to be forgiven, or you don't, you don't get into heaven. However, he says he's, you're not only forgiven, that... that you could never be justified in the law of Moses. You could never possess righteousness. And that's what justification is. That my life now through faith in Christ has been justified. That not only have I been brought up even by having my sins forgiven, my account has been filled to, with an inexhaustible supply that I could never ever run out of. That when God looks at me, he sees me in the righteousness of Christ. Paul's saying, he's saying, look, that couldn't happen in the Old Covenant. That couldn't happen in the Law of Moses. Not possible. The issue that the the religious leaders of Jesus' day had is they thought that they could manufacture righteousness. That's why they had endless lists of obedience. And when I see legalistic uh, groups or circles that base it on, well, this is, you know, if (laughs) If you if you can just be good enough, if you can do enough good deeds, if you're, I mean, you're saved unto good works. I mean, that's how I was raised in a counterfeit religion. It, it, it's hamster on a wheel theology. You run, 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 and you never get anywhere. He's saying, no, the gospel is far greater than that. Stop running. Understand that simply through faith, you have been justified. Not just sins forgiven, but taking that word apart just as if you had never sinned. 
that God now looks at you. He looks at me just as if I had never done anything wrong, as though I had never said anything wrong, as though I had never thought anything wrong. That's justification. Couldn't happen, Paul says, in the religious system that you have been raised in, as he talks to these people. He goes on and he gives them a solemn warning. Because remember, he's applying God's word now. He's applying these things to their lives. And I mentioned last week that if you share the gospel and you share it with an unbeliever, that there should be a warning in there as well. It's not that we're trying to scare people into the kingdom of God, but they've got to come, people have got to come to an understanding that it's about sin. I had a a beautiful dialogue with my niece in Hawaii yesterday. Uh, We were riding back and forth and she's saying, Uncle John, these talks you've been having with me for years really have meant something and, and Thank you. I'm seeking the Lord. And it was, I could tell, sounds like the Holy Spirit's gotten a hold of her. And and I said, you know, she said, I just so, yeah, she was kind of appreciating me. And I said, "Uh, Melissa, you need to realize it's far more important that you seek the Lord and what he thinks of you than what I think of you. I love you, but you got to understand it's about your relationship with him. And so it was just a kind of a gentle redirect. And and it's about forgiveness for your sins. It's about coming into that right relationship with him. And it just reminded me of what we're looking at here. He's telling these people, look, you can go through all the obedience lists you want. But unless you've trusted Christ, unless you understand that his love is poured out through the work of the cross... And his power is poured out through the work of the resurrection. You're not going to live a complete life. And there's a warning in it. In verse 40, he says, beware, therefore. There's another therefore. He says, beware, lest what has been spoken in the prophets prophets comes upon you. It wasn't just speaking of Christ. It's speaking of judgment. Now he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1. In verse 41 he says, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So he speaks of the judgment of God that comes upon the unbelieving heart, upon the unbelieving person. The person that says, yeah, well, thanks, but no thanks. And I've had people do that with me. And... and I've had to warn. I shared with you guys a few weeks ago about the RN while I was in the hospital. A guy by the name of Zach came in. And it was just, it was so cool because he came in and said, you know, what denomination are you? And I said, well, I, I don't belong to a denomination. I, I'm a Christian. I, I just simply love Jesus and I believe his word. And we got talking. He said, yeah, I bought this Bible a while ago, but I don't know, I'm trying to figure out what it means. And I'm like, well, let me help you with that. And uh, so I, I had the opportunity to lay out the entire gospel. And I started uh, in the Old Testament, I started in Genesis and then worked all the way through to Revelation and and shared the cross with him. And, and, and I knew that the Holy Spirit was working. I just had that sense. And because he came back into my room later and asked me about a church uh, that I had referred him to up in Hillsborough. At any rate, um, one of the things I told Zach, that was his name, 
as I was wrapping up, sharing the gospel with him, is, look, Zach, the Bible is very clear that in, in the final analysis, you need to bow the knee. It says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you either bow the knee willingly, faithfully, trusting Christ as Lord in your life personally, or you will bow the knee and it'll be forced submission just prior to judgment. And this guy's looking at me like, okay, this got real serious. But it is serious because God's serious about us. Serious enough that he loved us to the point of sending his son to die in our place. And folks, it's a beautiful thing when we understand God's heart in, in all of that. Second Peter 3, 9, I love this passage because it's not, you know, we, it's not a warning like, you better watch it, buddy. God, is, he can't wait to get his hands on you if you don't repent. You know, that's not what it is. Second Peter, Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What promise? Been looking at it. The promises of God, the promise of salvation. He says, not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but he's long suffering, patient towards us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. God wants a family. This whole thing is about, you know, he wants a family. He wants a family that wants to be his family. He's not going to force anybody. He's not going to hold a gun to our head. He's not going to put us in a half Nelson and say, you will repent. He wants people that lovingly, willingly understand the lengths that he's gone to to do what we can't because we can't make righteousness and that's a required ingredient for heaven. He wants the people that say, you know, I'm bowing the knee. I'm humbly getting out of my own way and giving my life fully to you. I want to wrap up with three questions. The first, do you see God's word as a mere collection of stories? Great stories, but do you see it just as a collection of stories? Or do you see it like a river, like I've talked about? Redemptive history, which from the garden flowed forward, looking towards Christ. It's all connected. That's what Paul's been doing here in Antioch. He's been connecting the dots for these people. We call it connecting the dots. I'm sure he didn't say, hey, let me connect the dots. But that's what he's doing. He's, he's connecting these things. He's saying, these aren't random stories. This is one story. It's his story. That's why it's redemptive history. His story of what he is doing to draw man into alignment with him. With that in mind, as we look back at Calvary, at the work that Jesus did, do you, church, see yourself as part of that flow, as being in that river of redemptive history, of being in and immersed in what God's word is revealing because he's not done. He's not finished. Second thing, second question. What is your prophetic perspective? Now, Paul, what he's been doing here as he's been laying things out to the people, he's saying, look, these things were prophetically uttered. God said, I will redeem you. And then he did. 
you know, David wrote these beautiful prophetic utterances all through the Psalms, and, and Paul just keeps hammering them home, bringing one out after another. God says, I want to rule over you, and I want to be your king. And then he demonstrates that he is a good and faithful and just king. Understanding that Jesus is the focal point in human history, and he is. Let's look at it. I was watching a show the other night on Fox or whatever it was, and they were talking about, well, before our common era, and then in our common era, and I thought, you know, okay, you guys, I don't care what you say, what the acronym you use. If you want to ignore that Christ is the focal point, there's BC and AD. You can call it BCE because, you know, it's not mentioned Jesus. I don't care about that. He's the focal point. He divides history. Understanding that he's the focal point of history. Uh, and, and for those in the Old Testament spoken of here, there's now their perspective was, was they were looking forward. David looked forward to Messiah. Abraham looked forward. The people of Israel in the Old Testament days in these different accounts that we've looked at, the prophets looked forward to a future fulfillment. And what did they look forward with? They had anticipation. They were anticipating Messiah. They were excited that God has laid out a plan and we get to look forward to what he's going to do. Now for those in Antioch, as Paul lays this out, their perspective was that of fulfillment. Yeah, there are things to anticipate. We'll get to that. But what he's saying is, look, that which the Old Testament saints looked forward to, you see the fulfillment of. And that's his point. Uh, We have both, by the way. We have fulfillment and anticipation. We see the fulfillment of all that God has done to bring us into a relationship with him. And yet we anticipate because we know that he's not finished. That he is, and I believe rapidly, drawing this age to a close. I believe that this, that I mean, his, he is actively working in this world. And, and yeah, it might look like the other guy's winning, but guess what? I've read the end of the story. We win. And that's important to keep in mind. So we look forward with anticipation. And we also look back at the fulfillment of what God has done. Because when we look at what God has done, it brings us a sense of satisfaction that, hey, you know what? I'm on the right track. And we look at what he's yet to do, it brings us excitement. And and it, it encourages us because I'm encouraged at understanding that any moment he could wrap this thing up. He could draw this age to a close. And then we're with him forever. Perspective. Stacy had a quote that I wrote down. This is something she wrote down. It was on a little post-it note in our uh, kitchen uh, from Jen Markell. The, uh, she's a woman that does a lot of stuff on the radio and uh, pretty well known. She says, look back and thank him. And this applies to us. Look back. Thank him. Look ahead and trust him. Look around and serve him. Isn't that good? Third thing, uh, and with this we'll wrap up. It's a very good thing to understand the power of Jesus' blood to cleanse us from sin. And 
not but. And does your theology stop there? Talked about that. Or is it permanently linked to the resurrection? As Luke's writings in Paul's words here in Acts reveal. Like I said, every time, every time that Luke writes about the crucifixion, he follows it up by saying, but he rose from the dead. It's all about transformation, folks. Uh, And I don't care, uh, again, uh, if you've been a Christian for a short time or if you have been for decades, God is still in the business of transforming hearts. He's still in the business of taking dented up lives and making them whole. How are you doing in that process? The power of the resurrection allows our identity to be that of a new life, not a life of sin and despair that we once knew. Therefore, let's not walk around as dead people, but as alive in Christ. Don't stop with the awesome power of the cross. Yes, awesome. I don't ever want to underestimate that. But continue the journey to the incredible power of the resurrection and allow Christ to live in, to be formed in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's God's will for our lives. That's what Paul is conveying to these people here in Antioch. And, and again, we'll start next week with the, the, the Gentiles that were there. They, they grab him afterwards as he dismisses everybody. And they say, we got to have some more of this. This is amazing. And I'm paraphrasing, but they're excited. So excited that word flashes through the city and they get together the next Sabbath and they can't go to the synagogue. I'll share, I'll share where they go. There's one place in ancient Antioch where I believe they went. It couldn't hold them. The whole city essentially went to church that day. The whole city turns out because the words of this guy are so powerful. Why are they powerful? Because the Holy Spirit is in it. He is anointing the speaking, but guess what? He's also anointing the hearing. That's my prayer constantly for, for us, guys. That, that Lord, yeah, I, and I pray before I teach. Yeah, Lord, if you don't do it, it ain't going to get done. But that works on both sides of the pulpit. It's not just God anoint the preacher. It's God anoint my hearing. Give me ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that understands what your will is for me as part of your church. That's God's desire. That's his revealed will. And as we allow ourselves, as we submit ourselves to his work, to his transforming hand, wonderful things take place in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we're so appreciative of the work that you're doing in each of us. I, I look and I see, uh, Lord, just watching my bride yesterday and, and just thinking about uh, the sweet work that you're doing in her as she's just humming and working around the house and just praising you, Lord. I praise you for the work you're doing in each of us and pray, Father, that you would find people whose hearts are yielded to your transforming power or that we walk in the power of the resurrection, that we avail ourselves of the helper, the one that comes alongside, that gives us insight and ability Father, I pray for each one here. I pray that you would just bless. Bless our day. Bless the time that we share together as we uh, now uh, share a meal together. And pray, Father, that it would all be for you. 
that it would be for your glory and that we can live our lives out in the open, live our lives current with you, Lord, and not caught up in sin or aspects of it. And Lord, that you would use us. Pour out your spirit, we pray. We give ourselves afresh to you. In Jesus' name, amen.